He'd been called Grandpa Harry uh, in his latest incarnation because he used to carry a 44 Magnum pistol, just like Dirty Harry, as in the uh, Clint Eastwood character. The not-so-subtle threat was when I went home that night and looked in the letterbox, there was a brick in the letterbox. What was most interesting to the police who investigated this was that this body's testicles had been removed. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we're looking at the strange case of Aubrey Brohill, alias Grandpa Harry, alias the Beanie Bandit, and the way he lived and died. The first time I met the guy they called Grandpa Harry, also known as the Beanie Bandit, was in Pentridge Prison in about 1987. Uh, he was in Pentridge for robbing banks and I was there to visit him to ask him a question. It was a fairly personal question and it went this way. I said to him, Aubrey, because that was his real name, uh, I said, is it true that um, you embarked on robbing a series of banks in order to provide money for your young daughter? Now, Aubrey, his real name was Aubrey Brohill, uh, was a man in his 60s at this stage and detectives had told me that they think he'd embarked on a series of bank robberies to raise the cash to put aside for his young daughter. He'd met a, a young woman outside jail and had this young child and they thought it was a bit like setting up a bit of a trust account. So we had this sort of Dickensian great expectations scenario which was very uh, Interesting. He he didn't say much behind the thick glass in the visitor's box, but he did indicate that that was true. And I said, how did he intend to distribute the money? And he said he had friends. That was all that was required. He had friends who were looking after the money. Well, that was good. And he told me a few other things about himself. This was a man who'd been in trouble with the law since the late 1930s. He'd... Um, his first arrest was at 12 years old in 1938. He moved on after World War II to become a fully-fledged uh, thief and robber. I think he robbed the Camberwell Town Hall payroll of £4,000 in 1961 with a revolver and was locked up for it. But he told me that he'd had many and various jobs. He was a, a real knockabout sort of old-time Australian, uh, sort of guy that would roll his own and all that sort of stuff. And he said he'd been a boundary rider on an outback station, uh, riding a horse around the boundary fences to keep an eye on them. And he'd also been a cook in a girls' school. But being uh, being old school, he wouldn't tell me which girls' school it was. And he filled me in a little bit about his life, which was quite good. And I went off uh, to the office at the then Herald newspaper to write this story. But sadly, next day I got a letter from... Aubrey, dated, in fact, the same day that I visited him. And the letter was on Pentridge notepaper, HMP at the top, box 114 Coburg, as all the letters from prisoners were in those days. And Aubrey had obviously had second thoughts about talking to me. And I think this was because at the time I was writing a book about Raymond Edmonds, the man they call Mr Stinky, who was a rapist and murderer. And when Aubrey had gone back into the prison population and he'd mentioned that he'd talked to me, I think Raymond Edmonds might have uh, expressed some displeasure. And then Aubrey, being a diplomat, had written to me to ask me not to write the story. And he underscored, he wasn't actually going to make a direct threat in the letter because, of course, the officials read them. But he, his last 
words in the letter were, we all have families, and he'd underlined it, which was obviously a, a, a sort of a subtle threat. The not-so-subtle threat was when I went home that night and looked in the letterbox, there was a brick in the letterbox, which I think was a little message from Aubrey, I might be in jail, but I know where you live. So I didn't write the story about his daughter at the time, but I was always interested in him, and I didn't really hold a grudge because I thought, well, he's old bloke in jail, he's got to live there, he's not a very big man, he's quite old. If he's got to carry favour with the others, well, fair enough, that's fine with me. But I followed his career with some interest, and Aubrey got out of jail after that, and we didn't hear much about him for a while until the 90s. Mind you, he'd done a lot of jail time over the years. Aubrey, although he was a prolific robber, he'd outlived so many generations of police that when he made his comeback in the 80s to rob things for for the benefit of his daughter, when the security cameras pictures came out and there's this old bloke with a great big gun and a beanie on his head, for a while no one recognised him because there were no police working in the squad that had ever arrested him in the past because he was really a relic from another era. He was a, a pound shilling some pence man. His first big robbery was in pounds. And in fact, he'd been called Grandpa Harry uh, in his latest incarnation because he used to carry a forty-four Magnum pistol, just like Dirty Harry, as in the uh, Clint Eastwood character. But being this is a forty-four Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. So he was known for a while as Grandpa Harry because when the, they looked at the security footage, all they could see was this bloke in a beanie with this great big hand cannon that was about 14 inches long and a very dangerous weapon. Anyway, uh, we don't hear much about Aubrey until the late 90s when all of a sudden he bobs up. He's arrested with a few other dirtbags who are going around from South Australia to Victoria, across country, stealing stuff. He's mainly stealing things from houses and farms. And um, Aubrey and these other fellows are arrested in Victoria and they're taken to, I think, St Kilda Road in Melbourne by the police. And at four o'clock in the morning, they're released from the police station. And Aubrey goes off with one of his co-accused, a fellow that we won't name, but we will say that he's a man who's very well known in the Riverland of South Australia, where he's possibly a notorious figure. And he and his son are well known over there. So he's a a very interesting figure in this story, this man that we won't name. And uh, they're let out four o'clock in the morning and um, apparently they head back towards South Australia, according to this man. This man says they took the train or something to Adelaide and then um, Aubrey was going to take the bus up to the Riverland and pick up his ute and drive back to Melbourne. But, of course, there's no sign of uh, this happening. And sometime later, at near Wodonga, up in the Victorian border with New South Wales, there's an empty quarry, and the empty quarry has a lot of water in it, and a worker uh, goes near there, and he sees a body floating in the water, and they hook it in, and there, indeed, it turns out to be this oldish man in his 70s, and it turned out to be Aubrey Brohill, and this body's been in the water quite a while. Aubrey Brohill's body was found two weeks after he was released by the police in Melbourne. So no one knows what happened in that two weeks or how he got to Wodonga. Uh, But when the body, his body was taken from the water, the police could see that he'd not died in a simple swimming accident because he was wearing a striped shirt and his blue denim jeans were caught around his left foot although his belt 
had remained fastened. It looked as if he wasn't just going for a swim. Uh, he was not wearing underpants and he was barefoot. He might have gone commando, it's hard to know. Um, in the jeans, the police found spectacles in a case, a brown wallet containing $208.90, his driver's licence in his own name, his Medicare pension and seniors card. So there was a well-prepared old crook. He had all his pensions and seniors cards, possibly uh, more than one. Uh, so this told the police that robbery was not the motive. If, if it was foul play and he had been murdered and drowned deliberately or whatever, um, it wasn't about robbery. It was about getting rid of him or some sort of revenge. Now, who knows what really happened, but you'd have to wonder whether his co-offenders might have wondered whether he had spoken to the police rather frankly about them and informed on them, or they might have thought they would get in first and kill him because he could inform on them. And indeed, it would appear that these people have some sort of form in this area because four of their co-offenders in South Australia, including a teenage boy, uh, went on the missing list. So these people are high on a very short suspect list for not one but five murders. There was no car. There were no tyre marks that they could see. Uh, there was no indication that Aubrey had taken public transport up to Wodonga. There were no bus tickets, no train tickets that had been sold to him. There were no um, indications in hotels or motels or refuges or anywhere where he might have stayed, all of which tells the detectives that somehow he got to Wodonga in a vehicle with somebody else and that vehicle left after Aubrey went in the drink. So the pants, the pair of jeans he had on have been pulled down. Don't know why. So he's naked from the waist down. And um, what was most interesting to the police who investigated this was that this body's testicles had been removed. Now, they couldn't really tell whether the testicles had been removed by human intervention uh, before this fellow was killed or after he was killed or indeed whether there was a natural um, explanation for this. When the police got there and saw the body, they looked and saw that there were quite a few turtles bobbing around. You can see their heads in the water when you're used to looking for turtles. You do notice their heads just coming up just above water level. And there'd been quite a few bobbing around the body. And there is a common breed of turtle that um, eats carrion and frogs and fish and tadpoles and almost anything it can get in the water. And it, it's well held that uh, they have very sharp teeth and will eat soft, fleshy things. So it could be that the turtles were guilty of chewing poor old Aubrey's tackle, but we just don't know whether it was the turtles or whether it was an even lower life form, another form of reptile altogether from South Australia. The police have their suspicions about the chaps from South Australia. When the Victorian police went to South Australia five days after the body was found, they went and interviewed a man at Renmark in the Riverland. Now, this man is clearly high on the list of suspects and they talked to him about what had, might have happened to the old mate Aubrey Brohill and he was uh, a little bit nervous and um, he appeared chatty but a bit tricky in the way he gave his um, answers which made the police very suspicious about him and when they asked him what he thought he said to them uh, I think the Victorian coppers did him in. He also said um, he was an old fellow, Brohill, Aubrey Brohill was old and unsteady on his feet and often tripped when he was walking. 
Now, this would seem a very convenient thing to say about somebody who may well have tripped and fallen into a flooded quarry and drowned. Not everybody agreed with this summary of uh, Aubrey's um, fitness. Even though he was 73, some believe that he was uh, quite fit, such as his younger sister, Beverly, who tells a very different story. And she said he was very fit for his age, he didn't drink or smoke, and was a very strong man. He was still very agile. What's more, she says, he was the strongest swimmer I've ever seen. Beverly remembers the family going eeling in the Yarra and her big brother diving into the river. He'd glide through the water like Johnny Weissmuller, she said. She was, of course, referring to the great uh, swimmer and actor who played Tarzan. So what they did, being very dedicated police, they went to um, a John Coventry, who is a former president of the Australian Society of Herpetologists. Now, these are people, of course, as we all know, who are experts in reptiles and snakes and turtles and things. This man had worked for Museum Victoria for 45 years. And Mr Coventry gave qualified support to the theory that the eastern snake-necked turtle could damage a body. He said it was possible for the species to feed on a partially submerged human body. He said it would be more than likely that the flesh would be taken from soft tissue areas rather than bony areas such as fingers. But no one has been able to explain why the turtles would attack only the testicles and ignore other soft areas of the body, including thighs, cheeks and abdomen. Michael Swan, reptile keeper at Melbourne Zoo, said that the eastern snake-necked turtle could break down carrion using a ripping action with front claws just a few millimetres long, and he said the turtle would leave shredding marks. In fact, when given details of Brohill's injuries, the man from the zoo said he doubted that the turtles were the culprits. I have never heard of them being involved in something like that. I'm no expert on murders, he said, but it sounds to me as if there must have been some form of human intervention. So the turtles might have done it, but that's not the way the jury's thinking. And that's the end of the story of Grandpa Harry, Aubrey Brohill, who ended up sleeping with the turtles. Thanks for listening. You can read more about this story in my column in the Sunday Herald Sun or on heraldsun.com.au. troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.